You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Thank you so much. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 20 as you're doing that. Let me tell you that I have the privilege of being around many, many pastors. My best friends are pastors. Uh, The people that I enjoy the most being in a room with are pastors. There is no pastor that I know of that I respect any good one. And you got a real one. And of course, we know he would be nothing without Aaron, right? And uh, I have so much respect for your... There you go. That was right on cue. That's a good job. Um, And listen, you know that before God plants a church in a city, God plants that church in a man's heart. And so what we're experiencing today on your fifth birthday is something that uh, it would be neat to crawl inside of your head and heart to see what you envisioned five years out from what happened five years ago. But uh, uh, we're going to talk about some things this morning that are essential ingredients for a church and a ministry that last. I believe all five of these things are true of your church, or we wouldn't have survived the five years. Um, and yet, would those things need to continue to be, continue to be things that we uh, grip and grasp and never let go of. And so, I think you'll see those here from uh, Acts chapter twenty. And uh, by the way, does anybody actually have a five-year-old living in your home? Do you? Does anybody have you? Have you been around a five-year-old? I mean, five-year-olds are cute. Five-year-olds are messy. Five-year-olds need constant supervision lest they kill themselves or someone else, right? And so uh, congratulations. Happy birthday. You're a five-year-old as a church, right? Um, Your best is yet to come. There's still muscle that needs to be developed. There's still some things that we need to know. There's wisdom that needs to be acquired. You probably feel like you could kill yourself or somebody else at any moment. Uh, That means you're five years old as a church, and God is maturing and growing that which he has started. So uh, great things to come uh, as a um, as a five year old church. Uh, Blair mentioned uh, I've spent the last thirteen years old thirteen years as a pastor of a Great Commission Collective Church in Granger, Indiana. Granger's right outside of Notre Dame University, so that kind of gives you the idea of the the lay of the land up there. And I miss it. Uh, we're about a year into this journey. Uh, I was invited to be the vice president of content development at Family Life. Anybody listen to Family Life today on the radio or podcast? Ever been to a weekend to remember Family Life uh, marriage conference? And so I'm kind of responsible for all of that now. And uh, that's the calling of the Lord that he has on our life. And that gives us an opportunity to impact a lot of different individuals and marriages and families but we never want to bypass what God does in and through His church. And so what you are doing this morning is the most significant work in the world. What you're doing this morning is the most significant thing happening in the world right now. And so few people recognize the value of what is happening. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I was impacted with the gospel at the age of 15 through a local church youth ministry. And I... I heard the gospel, I responded in repentance and faith as a 15-year-old, and I was just immersed into a healthy, thriving, growing church. 
And uh, I remember we loved the Word of God. And uh, our church was uh, a church that kind of brought in special speakers. Remember when churches used to have like week-long revival meetings and people would come in with trucks and trailers and kind of look like the circus? Uh, that's a whole other chapter of my life I'll tell you about sometime. But anyway, our church did that. And there was a, a particular... And Bill was a dynamic preacher and I had so much respect. And back in the day, my friends and I that were growing Christians, uh, the thing we would do when anytime we would meet a, a dynamic preacher, pastor type is we would take our Bibles to him and at the end of the service, we would have him sign his name. And I remember that when I did this with Bill, he signed his name and then he put a verse of scripture under it. The verse he put down was Acts 20:24. Now I'd never read that verse before. If I'd read it, I didn't know what it meant, but I went home and I immediately read it. And when I read this verse, several things happened in my life. Number one, it immediately became my life verse. Let me read it to you right now. Acts 20:24. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Well, as soon as I read that, God captured my heart. It immediately became my life verse. The second thing that happened is I was convicted of how often I think my life is precious to me. And I had to repent. If you truly believe that your life is precious to the Lord, you do not need to run around convincing everybody else that your life should be precious to them. And your wisdom and your knowledge and your importance, listen, that is a, a continual fight even to this day. There is great security and know that if your life is precious to God, you don't have to constantly prove that it's precious to anybody else. The third thing that happened to me is I received a call to full-time vocational ministry. It's just all I wanted to do. I wanted to get the gospel out. And, and I just told the Lord, God, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. And... He has taken me very seriously on that commitment. And here I am in New Braunfels, Texas, as a response to what God was doing in, in my life on that day that Bill Stafford signed my Bible. Ministry is a gift that you receive. It's not a career that you choose. And whether you're in full-time vocational ministry and you get to be a professional Christian like Blair and get paid for being a Christian, being paid to do ministry, or... Uh, you just wake up every day and you've got a ministry to your spouse and a ministry to your family and a ministry to your neighbors and a ministry to your small group and a ministry to the, the people that you intersect every day. If you are a member of the body of Christ, you are a minister in the body of Christ. And we all need ministering and we all need a ministry both inward and outward as we live our lives out uh, before the Lord. The next thing that happened to me when I read that verse was I committed that the focus, the centrality of my ministry would be the gospel of the grace of God. That's what Paul says the focus of his ministry was. Now, do you know the gospel? Has Blair ever shared this part of God's word with you? Surely he has, right? Here's the way I like to summarize it. The gospel is simply this. God is holy. I am not. Christ is Savior. Repent and believe that. That's the gospel, and maybe it's irreducible form. It's the understanding that Jesus died on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sin, and he rose to live 
three days later to save all who would repent and believe. That is the irreducible minimum of everything our ministry is about. By the way, if you ever go to a church and you don't hear some form of that, you need to find a new church. I'm trusting you're here because you hear that uh, often from this pulpit. Well, that verse is inserted into a narrative of Paul, who was a church planter, apostle, went around, did a lot of different things, and he had planted a church in a, in a historical place at a historical time in the city of Ephesus. And so this is the story of Paul kind of saying goodbye, saying farewell to those that he had ministered to for three years. And he kind of does what you've done here this morning. He looks back on those three years and reflects fondly about his ministry and the way people have responded to the ministry. So I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at that as you reflect on the last five years of your church. Let's kind of walk through this, this text here. Let's begin in verse 17. Paul is uh, speaking. He says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I first set foot in Asia. It was about three years ago. In verse 19, he says, I was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. You know those two go together, trials and tears. You usually don't get one without the other. Uh, tears and trials. That happened to me through the plot of the Jews. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks, insiders and outsiders, of two things, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold... I'm going to Jerusalem. So he's announcing his departure. There's gonna, you're going to have to continue this work without me because God's called me to go do something else in Jerusalem. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await for me there. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. I believe from this text of Scripture we can identify these five essential ingredients of a ministry that lasts. Here's the first one. It's transparency. Paul says, you know how I lived among you. In a day of podcasting preachers and YouTube sermons and, and all kinds of downloads in two dimensions, uh, you should be grateful that you have a three-dimensional pastor that I even heard it in the testimony. You can actually touch him. He's not untouchable. I've, I've touched you before. You're real. You're a real person, right? And here's the thing. When you are committed to transparency in ministry and when you give your life to ministry, here's the thing that comes with leadership in ministry. It exposes all of your weaknesses. Um, I, Blair, I'm sure, is a five-star in some elements of being a pastor. But when you plant a church, you have to do everything until other five-star people show up to fill in your gaps and weaknesses. 
And so uh, transparency is a part of ministry. There's incredible humility that comes with being a pastor. Uh, it means that your weaknesses get exposed. It means that you become incarnational with people just as Jesus didn't just save the world from his throne in heaven. He came and lived among us. He dwelt among us so that we could see his glory. We, you can see the glory of Blair. Problem is, is he's got also flesh and weaknesses, and you can see those things as well. But in order for there to be a thriving ministry with real people, you have to be a real person that incarnates yourself with other real people so that your weaknesses get exposed as well. There's a lot of pastors and, and people that are unwilling to do that. Forget the focus on Blair. I'm focusing way too much on Blair this morning. How about you? Are you willing to expose your weaknesses? Are you willing to take off your Sunday morning mask? I mean, you all look really great this morning, but we, you know what you look like when you woke up this morning, right? There was a lot of work that went into getting you where you are today, and we're grateful. Thank you for doing that. But the real you needs to be transparent with real people. Transparency brings a vulnerability, but transparency also brings a credibility. It means that when you talk about these things, it's because you've struggled and you've fought through and you've doubted and you've had to wrestle with things that were uncertain. A ministry that lasts is driven by people who are willing to be transparent, actually exposing who they are. And that's what Paul said he was willing to do. You know how I lived among you. Not over you, but among you. Here's the second ingredient. It's tears. He mentions these tears in verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility. Underline the word humility. Humility and with tears and with trials. Those are kind of a package. It's kind of the, the trilogy of ministry. Humility, tears, and trials. Those tears are realities for people who love other people. Uh, my wife and I have shed tears for a couple in our church that have been in our church from the beginning. They've ministered to us. They've, they've, they've had marriage ministry. We've prayed with this couple. They've, they've, they've served our church in so many ways. And, and yet we got a text last week that there's real issues going on that, that really bring us to tears. And there needs to be genuine repentance. And there needs to be a work of grace once again in God's in that family. And you know people like this. And if you have the humility to get close to people, you're going to experience some real tears. For immature believers that need to mature, for people that, that are not exercising wisdom in the way that they're living out their lives, even their financial lives or their calendar lives. But notice we serve the Lord with all humility. Paul's ministry was first and foremost, notice, not about serving people. He says, I'm doing this because I'm serving the Lord, which is the only thing that gets you through when you're serving people. People are always going to let you down, and yet if your focus is serving the Lord, he had a vertical focus, then it fueled him to have the relational um, service as well. Ministry can be incredibly humbling. All your weaknesses are on full display. It requires that you do things that you're not particularly good at, never things that you were never trained in doing, and yet everybody feels like they you know, want to help you by sharing their critique of whatever you're doing there. It's incredibly humiliating. But ministry can also be incredibly inflating. 
I mean, think about what's happening right now. You walked in here. There's only one person in the room talking. All the chairs are pointed at this person. There are lights illuminating my image. I am on an elevated platform. My voice is being amplified. In, in the church that I was, and I'm sure you'll get there at some point, but they, they stuck a camera on. They magnified my image on the screen. Do you know how incredibly inflating that can be to your ego? And Paul says, I serve the Lord with all humility. You have to choose daily to embrace humility because often ministry can be incredibly inflating. And it is a trap. And so the Lord has a way of keeping you humble. Do you know what it is? It's what Paul mentions. Trials and tears. God just puts you in pressure-packed situations that you can't handle to drive you to your knees so that you acknowledge how dependent you are on Him. And the moment that you stop doing that, you lose the essential ingredient of tears that actually fuels ministry that lasts. Here's the third thing. Truth. He mentions that in verse 20. Paul says, I did not shrink. That's an interesting word picture, isn't it? To shrink means to diminish. He says, I didn't diminish. I didn't hesitate. I didn't withhold. I didn't replace truth with stories to entertain you or to stroke your ego. I didn't apologize for speaking truth to you. I didn't apologize. I didn't withhold the diagnosis of your true spiritual condition, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you. Notice he, he lists three pairs in the next few statements. Here's the first pair. I didn't shrink from, from teaching you publicly. That's what we're doing now. Sunday morning gathered service. You got to be here. You got to make it a priority. And... Uh, I woke up this morning in our hotel, and I went down for breakfast, and I noticed there were people up early. The only people up early in the hotel are people that are preaching on Sunday morning and the people that are going out to ride their bikes in some competitive race. Is that something going on in New Braunfels? I don't know. But these, these people are like, okay, I'm going to worship something, and they are too. And it's like I, I doubt they're on their way to church this morning. Now, if you're here today, I apologize. But I'm thinking these people had something else to worship. And the world will offer you so many alternatives to gather, to do something else at the time when your church has called the body to gather for worship. Paul said, I didn't shrink from teaching you publicly. But then he said there's another component of this that's really important, from house to house. That means we have the, the gathering and then we have the scattering. We have the large group, and then we have the small group because it's so much more healthy and so much more effective for discipleship to put the, the chairs in circles rather than in rows, and now that's where we get to know each other. That's where you're loved, known, cared for within a church. That's why if you haven't yet thrown yourself into a committed small group, then throw yourself into that. That's where soul care takes place. You guys as a church model that so well so well for the rest of the Great Commission Collective. So, publicly and from house to house. And then, um, he says, another set of pairs in verse 21, he says this. 
testifying to Jews and to Greeks. So Paul was a Jew. His people were Jewish people. We know he carried a great burden for Jewish people. He, when he went into a town, the first place he went, he went to the Jewish synagogue so that he could reason with them around the things that were common to them. These are the people that God gave the most revelation. These were the people that had written copies of God's word uh, throughout centuries of, of God revealing himself in Jewish history. And so God says, we don't want to neglect them. Or Paul says, we don't want to neglect them. So he goes to them first, but then he's not content to stay there. He's like, there are people who are far from God, who haven't had that kind of revelation, who don't have the benefit of years of, of knowing how God operates with his people. The same should be true of us. I, I appreciate so much um, your, uh, even in Blair's uh, prayer to say we want to be a worshiping church and ascending church. So it's not just upward, it's also outward. Because those people on the bicycle this morning need somebody to tell them, hey, there is a better alternative for your life. There's something more superior to worship than your own physical fitness or anything else that competes with that. So Paul says, I'm testifying to those who are both near and far. I'm testifying to those who are insiders and outsiders. And notice here, he's willing to do cross-cultural evangelism and missions. Because those Gentiles, they didn't look like him. They didn't think like him. They didn't act like him. And they were declared enemies. And God says to Paul that those are the people that I sent you to go preach the gospel to. Now, if Paul had not done that, nobody in this room would be celebrating their fifth anniversary as a church because the church would exclusively reside within the Jewish people. And yet, as a result of that, here we are 2,000 years later, most of us, I'm sure, as Gentiles, really grateful that Paul expanded the circle, right? And because he planted a church in Ephesus, one day there was a church planted in New Braunfels because Paul said, I'm not going to withhold the truth from people who are far from it. Now, how many of you know some people that are far from truth? How many of you know some people that are believing lies? How many of you know some people that are making some really dumb decisions and yet they're convinced they're right? We can't shrink from them. We can't diminish. We can't be afraid of them. We can't just worship around people that look like us and sound like us and act like us. We have to even be willing to cross political party lines or cultural party lines and get to where people who are living who are far from God. That's what Paul did. He testified both to Jews and to Greeks, to men and to women, to young and to old, rich and poor, black and white, Republicans and Democrats, the truth about the revealed word of God. And then he mentions this last pair. So he said, he said publicly and house to house, Jews and Greeks, and then he says, here was the content of that message, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know the irreducible minimum of what our response should be every time we hear the word of God, it's that. Every time I hear the word of God, every time I hear the gospel, the gospel calls for an action on my part, a response of two things, 
repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God, what is that? It is turning from sin. It's, you know what, there were some ways and some thinking. I was headed this direction, and I did a pivot. I turned my back on sin, and now I face the Lord, and now I'm going to walk in His ways. Now listen, can I ask for a little transparency? Remember, that's the first essential ingredient. Let me ask you a question. If you sinned this week, would you please raise your hand? Ladies are looking at their husband. Get your hand in the air. Like I saw some of that. Like if you didn't, rate, you're like I was just having a really hard time. Just have a conversation with your spouse. They'll help you out making the list. Okay. So every time I hear the gospel, and God convicts me of sin, my response should not be, "I want to think about that. I'm going to create a strategy about that. I'm going to pray about that." The response is always repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So often I think that we have a theology of the gospel past where we think about, yeah, Trent, when you were talking about, you know, being a 15-year-old and you, you responded in repentance and faith, that's, that was when you heard the gospel in repentance. It's like you, you might say, I remember a time like that as well. And, and that's when I repented and placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, if the only time or if the last time you repented and put your faith in Jesus was when you were a 15-year-old? Um, you need to do it again. I'm not telling you you need to be saved again. I'm telling you that as a person who is saved, that every moment working out of the gospel in my life is nothing more than repentance toward God and continual faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment you stop repenting and the moment you stop expressing faith in Jesus is the moment you stop walking in faith and repentance toward God. Skip down to verse 25. He says, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. You know, that was true in Paul's day. I don't think that that's even, it's not even possible anymore because there's Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. It's like, you, could, you can't even get away from somebody's face today if you wanted to, right? So, it, you know, he's saying, you're not going to see me anymore because Facebook hadn't been invented yet. Verse 26 says this, Therefore, I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He was innocent of blood because he refused to diminish the truth about God. He preached the message he was sent to preach. He planted the church he was sent to plant. He matured the believers that he was meant to mature. And he loved the people to whom he was sent. And then he said, now I'm going to go do that again. I'm going to go replicate that somewhere else. And so he wanted to make sure that he was giving them the whole counsel of God's Word. It's not just picking and choosing the parts of the Bible that we like. It's like there's a whole narrative. There's a whole story here from beginning to end. There's just one story. It's all about Jesus. And, and it's, it's our need for Him. And it's our response of repentance and faith toward Him. Here's the fourth thing. It's trust. Trust. Look back up at verse 22. He says, And now behold... I'm going to Jerusalem, 
constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions away from me. Don't you wish it would say like buffets and hot tubs and congratulations and parades await for me? That's not what was awaiting him. It was going to be a hard life because he'd surrendered his life to ministry. In verse 24, of course, he says, I can do this because I'm not counting my life as precious to myself. This word constrained is an interesting word. Have you ever been constrained by the Spirit? It actually means to be, to be handcuffed, to be tied. Like you can't do anything other than the one who is constraining you is allowing you to do. It means to, be, to have the Holy Spirit. So arrest our attention and consume our ambitions that we can't think about anything else, we can't be content doing anything else. Maybe even right now, the Holy Spirit is constraining you to say, you know what, you need to step into deeper levels of repentance and faith. You need to lead a small group. You need to start giving faithfully out of that which God has given to you. And there's a thousand ways that the Holy Spirit might constrain you. And I wouldn't want to bypass the opportunity to say if the Lord would constrain you like Paul to plant a church or at least start the process or the conversation, how does a church get planted? I'm sure that Blair would spend time with you, training you and loving you and investing so that we can see what's happening here in redemption happen in other places because the Lord knows it needs to be, it needs to be replicated everywhere we go, constrained by the Spirit. Paul says three things here about trust. Number one, he says, I will trust God with what lies ahead of me. So he says, I'm leaving, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I know what's going to lie ahead of me there. It's, they're not throwing a welcome party. Imprisonment and hardship. He's like, I'm going to trust God with that. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is providential. Now, I don't know about you, but like Paul, he says, I don't know exactly what's going to happen there. I just know it's going to be hard. Um, one of my favorite words, one of my core convictions, even in my ministry, is clarity. Anybody else a fan of clarity? Do you like it when the, the road signs tell you exactly where to go? Do you like it when Siri's actually announcing the right directions and telling you what's ahead? And, you know, not this next light, but the next one you're going to turn right. I love the clarity. Here's what God often does. He constrains you without giving you clarity. He says, I want you going without knowing. Now, for me, I'm like, Lord, if you just show me like what's out there, I'm fully surrendered to you. He's like, no, you're, you're going to demonstrate you're fully surrendered to me without the knowledge that you think you need before you go. Listen, if I had all the clarity, I wouldn't need to trust. And so God uses ambiguity to actually build my trust in Him for what lies ahead. Think about it this way. If trust is the goal of the Christian life, ambiguity is an asset. You got any ambiguity in your life? not quite knowing what's ahead and 
not, not quite knowing where the, the income's going to come from and not quite knowing the outcome. God wants to build your trust. You keep taking the next step, as Paul, going without knowing. And it's in the going that God provides the knowing. I'm going to trust God with what lies ahead. Here's the, the second thing. I'm going to trust God with what I leave behind. Notice Paul says this, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. He's telling them they're going to have to pay attention because he's not going to be able to anymore. He's passing the baton of leadership. Pay attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's just a little, kind of, that's just a little jab to the elders right there. It's like, hey, you, you know your responsibility is to pay attention to the flock, to care for the flock, and then, by the way, remember they don't belong to you. You don't own them. Jesus owns them. He bought them with his own blood. So you're an under-shepherd. You come alongside of them. And don't make them your emotional support animals. Sheep make terrible emotional support animals. They will bite you. Okay? And by the way, if you're uh, being cared for by one of your elders, don't bite the elder. Okay? He's trying to care for you. He's trying to, to shepherd you in some ways that you need to pay attention to. Verse 29. I know... I don't know everything, but here's one thing I know. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, that's interesting. Paul says, I know fierce wolves are going to attack you. I'm leaving anyway because I'm going to trust God with what I leave behind. Your safety is not dependent upon my presence. Your safety is dependent upon God's promises. And so he says, I'm going, but I know there's going to be these fierce wolves. He says, these fierce wolves, verse, verse 30, uh, there among yourselves will, will arise men speaking twisted things and draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day and night to admonish everyone with tears. What are these twisted things? these fierce wolves want to bring to the flock. Well, they, they want to twist what we believe about the sufficiency of Scripture alone as our final source of authority. How many of you have noticed that just like quoting Bible verses is not very convincing to the culture right now? They just think you're a fanatic, you know? I've kind of noticed in the culture right now you're only given two options. You can either be a fanatic or a hypocrite. Those are the only options. If you call yourself a Christian, you're either a fanatic or a Christian. Go with fanatic. It's better. So just be a fanatic about, like, I believe God wrote a book. I believe he revealed himself. I serve a God who speaks. He's spoken throughout history. He wrote some things down. Here's his standard of truth. I'm just trying to do what God says would be best for my life and yours because I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And yet these fierce wolves are going to try to twist things like our belief in the necessity of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, revealed in the Scripture alone. That's what we believe. And yet every day someone's going to try to diminish that and, and shrink that and to twist that belief. They're going to try to twist our belief in the sanctity of marriage and sexuality and gender 
that God has revealed for us in Scripture. And by the way, if you're somebody that struggles with like, I'm feeling stuff that I don't even understand and stuff, that's why we need the gospel. That's why we need a flock around us. That's why God's given you shepherds to help you bring your life in line with what God says is true about your life and will contribute to your flourishing in God's glory. And so these things are twisted. There's people that will try to twi twist the dignity that we believe every human being has as image bearers of God. Black and white, those who struggle with gender identity, those that are trapped in, in believing things that are not true about themselves, those people are image bearers of God and they are to be loved by the church. People will try to twist things like our belief in the urgency of glorifying God and making disciples and planting churches. That's what's going to happen in your next five years. Are you paying attention? Are you guarding yourselves? And here's the last thing. Trust God with what um, I leave behind and then trust God with what I need. Notice what Paul says in verse 32. He says, now I'm commending you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know how these hands ministered to my necessity, my needs, and to those who were with me. In all these things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. The obstacle to so many people taking their next step in faith is they cannot get to this point. I just simply cannot trust God is going to provide for what I need. I'm constrained by the Spirit. I'm convicted. I want to take a step. I just can't believe. If God would give me the stuff I need before I take the step, then I would take the step. It doesn't require trust. And it's the essential ingredient of a ministry that lasts. Here's the last thing. It's tithes. Tithes. Notice how Paul was tied together. His heart was knit together with these people that he'd ministered to for three years. Verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down in prayer with them all and there was much weeping on the part of all they embraced Paul there's the tie and they kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again and yet they accompanied him to the ship it must have been like having their arm amputated because the body was so tight they were so tied together. They prayed together. They did ministry together. They worshiped together. They repented and they believed together. That's a sign of a church that's healthy and thriving and has this essential ingredient. I, I told you we, we planted Gospel City Church 13 years ago. It was February the 8th, 2009. And... Um, you know, leading up to the launch of the church, you want everything to go right. And I really spent a lot of time kind of crafting what I wanted my first words at this church that I was planting to be. So I worked really hard for months just writing out a few words. Like, these are, this is going to be the, the first words spoken at this new church. I can't mess them up. On December the 26th, 2021, about a year ago, 
I spoke my last words to this church that I had planted after 13 years. And so I was thinking, what do I want my last words to be at this church? And I thought, you know, the first words were pretty good. So I allowed the last words to be the first words. And I want to read those words to you as a way of admonishing you and blessing you. Here's what I said. Today is a historic day. If God gives us His favor, we will often look back on this day in the years to come to celebrate a healthy... Us on the church launch team have given countless hours, thousands of dollars, and shed many tears in preparation for this day. Our motivation is not to promote ourselves, our opinions, or our creative ability. We live with a very sobering sense that we have been sent to communicate a timeless message in a timely fashion preserved forever in God's Word. We believe the world has seen enough of the church's human efforts to impress them or to convince them that Jesus is still relevant or cool. We will not measure our success by attendance, dollars, or meeting felt needs. Our measure of success will be obedience to God, resulting in the transformation of self-focused lives to Christ-centered lives. We simply want to be a church God can entrust with His glory. When the world sees God's glory in the church, some will be drawn to it, others will be repelled by it. But let it be known that God's glory is the one thing this church cannot live without. Let me ask you to bow your heads. Every time we hear the gospel, it requires a response of repentance and faith. I believe the Holy Spirit has brought a level of constraint to each one of us. He's spoken. Let me ask you, what is the Holy Spirit constraining you to do as a next step of trusting Him for what lies ahead? Will you surrender that to Him right now? Will you thank Him for the ambiguity that He's allowed? And will you embrace the opportunity to step out, to embrace a posture of ministry? And with it comes all the transparency and the vulnerability and the tears and the trials. Father, today we come as a grateful people, grateful for what you've done in the last five years to, to birth, to grow, to bring health to a church that is committed to your glory. And Lord, I pray that what we've seen in the first five years would just be a glimpse of what you can do in a people that is committed to you and willing to trust you for what they need, to trust you for what they leave behind, trust you for what lies ahead. God, we ask you to help us to respond in faith and repentance daily as you reveal yourself to us. 
Father, I pray for someone here today who may, for the first time, have heard your voice speak to their heart about their own sin and their need for a Savior. God, draw them, constrain them, bring them to full repentance and full faith, resulting in justification before your throne, resulting in transformation of their life, redemption, new life in Christ Jesus.